Hi, I'm Dr. John Lakey. And I'm Dr. Payman Danielport. We're board-certified plastic surgeons and hosts of the podcast Forever Young. Join us every Tuesday as we share the latest products and procedures in the never-ending quest to help our patients look and feel their very best. The world of cosmetic surgery is constantly improving. Join us on the cutting edge. Forever Young is available wherever you get your podcasts. The following content is not suitable for children. So we've got a tough topic today, and we're going to talk about 9-11, 20 years look back. And George is going to share with us about his experience and his takeaways and what he's learned and how he's grown since that time. Welcome to Foreplay Radio, Couples and Sex Therapy. I'm Lori Watson, your sex therapist. And I'm George Fallon, your couples therapist. And we are passionate about talking about sex and helping you develop a way to talk to each other. Our mission is to help our audience develop a healthier relationship to sex that integrates the mind, the heart, and the body. Hey, sign up for our couples retreat on October 1st. Great sex, great love. Just the two of you. More details at the end of this episode. So what have you got for us, G? Well, it's hard to believe it's been 20 years. Yeah. I mean, it's, I'm like, wow, 20 years. It seems like yesterday. I'm sure. I mean, for me, and I'm sure a lot of people can relate, it's, it was the best and worst of times. Mm. So what, what made it certainly the worst of times, right? I understand that. What about the best of times? What are you saying there? Well, let's start with the worst. Okay. Let's start with the, the worst. Best, the best evolves. Tell, so yeah, tell us about the worst. Absolutely. You know, I was, I was actually at home when mm. I, you know, got a, the phone call, turn on your TV, the first tower had been struck, mm. at which time my firehouse recalled, right? There was a recall in a, in a New York City Fire Department, which was to call guys off duty back because they had a feeling, you know, you might need extra manpower. And you, you were in a firefighter in Harlem. Yep. At the time, right? Truck 28? 28 truck to Harlem Hilton. Okay. So, I mean, I had two brothers that are firefighters. Mm -hmm. I have hundreds of friends and you don't mm -hmm. know what's going on. And well, I'll never forget having to drive away. And my wife, Kathy, was holding our newborn son mm. and she was crying. She oh. didn't know what was going on. And I felt bad she was crying. But I had to drive away. I mean, there was a job to do, a mission, and you know. But I still have that scene in my brain, seeing her tears as I'm driving. Oh my gosh! And it was a, a weird trip. I'm usually like an hour away from the city. I live up north, and I got there in a half hour because I was driving 120 miles an hour, and nobody was on the road, and cops were just—you had to go do what you got to do and get in there, mm -hmm. and you know, got into the firehouse, and it was a. Uh, what we call organized chaos, mm. people coming in, but you know, a lot of people have skills staying calm under pressure, mm -hmm. you know, and you can't take the fire trucks down there because you need the fire trucks to protect the area you're serving. Mm -hmm. So we commandeered a bus and we took the seats out of the bus and we put all our equipment on that bus and we drove down to the site. Wow. So you say organized chaos, people who had been trained to react in crises and keep their brains in green brain and calm, but 
gather all the things that they needed and then go. And you couldn't even take a, a truck. You had to commandeer a bus. What kind of a bus was that? Just a regular city bus to pick wow. people up, passengers. Wow. But could hold a lot of equipment and mm-hmm. a lot of firefighters and head down to the site. And, and so you go of, then with a team of men? Yep. Mm-hmm. Fellow, fellow colleagues and we all know people that now by this time, of course, you're listening to the radio, you know, that now that the first tower had come down and while we were getting the bus ready, the second tower came down mm-hmm. and, and we're listening to the scanners and, uh, and we know lots of people are missing and dead. Oh my gosh. And at this point, you don't know who's who, who's missing. You just know you're going to, chances are, you know, somebody who's missing. Mm. I, I can feel that just my heart is already hurting in this story and you haven't even gotten to to the site yet keep going so we drive down to the site and again that was like a scene I've never seen it was like being on another planet you can't see anything because of the dust there's still fires raging everywhere mm. but the buildings the way they collapse covered blocks of city and it was just like being on the moon just all bented twisted dusty steel Mm. and you're trying to kind of climb through it and figure out and meanwhile you don't have radios i mean it's just so much it was very different than most firefighting procedures the communication was knocked out as well and well it turns out 343 firefighters die and you know, so much of your control, your, your the brain of the fire department, the leadership are also dead and missing. Oh my gosh! You know, in this, so it really was. Uh, it was it was pretty chaotic. I can only and imagine. You're trying to figure out: is it safe to go? Is there going to be another attack? Would people need help? Or what do you? Do? How do you even help them? Like, where are they? Mm-hmm. You're kind of expecting it to be organized and be told, all right, you cover this section, next guy, you cover that section, but there's nobody there to tell you really what to do. So mm. it was uh, a truly a unique day. Mm. It just, it sounds so chaotic. I can see it. And you were really young. I mean, in your early 30s, right? Even yeah, 30 yet? Just... Or were you in your late 20s at that point? I am 31. Mm-hmm. So you're confronted at 31 with the biggest tragedy most of the world has ever seen. And right, you and you don't have time to, do. yeah. to think about the tragedy. You're not thinking about revenge or another attack. I mean, you're just focused on the mission at hand. There, mm-hmm. there are people missing. You got to find thousands it. of people in those buildings. They got to be somewhere. There's mm. got to be some survivors. There's, you know, how do you get there? And so you, that ability to turn off your emotions, turn off your fears, kind of head through the smoke, you know, through the fire and start searching for people. Wow. I mean, again, I think that's where the training really is, is, is so important. Mm-hmm. So the mission is just who can we help? Who, who survived? Who can we get out? Exactly. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, we didn't find anyone. Oh, my God. 
So that's where it felt like Groundhog's Day, where, you know, the first day turned into the second day, turned into the first week, turned into, you know, when you are literally searching through rubble, every day that passes, you know, the likelihood of someone being alive decreases. Yes. And there are thousands of people missing. There's mm -hmm. got to be some people alive and mm -hmm. you're just not finding them. I'll never forget the, they had search and rescue dogs that after a couple of days of not finding anybody, the dogs were getting depressed. Mm -hmm. So what they would do is they'd have firefighters alive who were searching to pretend they were laying in a rubble and could be found by the dogs so the dogs could have some success in what they're doing. Mm. Even the dogs were depressed. I can't imagine the men looking for people and the firefighters, not all men, I suppose, as well at that point. Yeah, it, it was so challenging because you couldn't get into places. There was so much debris mm -hmm. that you couldn't search. So you'd, that's why you'd have these piles, these lines of firefighters lined up that would just hand one piece to the next piece. And you would just hand it down like a football length field of to the end where they would put it in a new spot to pile up just mm -hmm. to kind of make some space where you could actually get in and, and do some searching. Mm-hmm. Mm. So many people just trying to clear a little bit away to in the hopes of finding somebody who's alive. Right. Mm -hmm. And you know, I remember, I don't remember what day, maybe a couple of days in, we had finally got into a void and it opened up and we got into like the cellar of the trade center, the basement area, mm -hmm. where it was weird because there were there were areas that were not collapsed. So you would have rooms and you'd bust open a door and there'd be a table there and everything was fine. So we thought we'd maybe find some people down there and we didn't mm -hmm. find anybody or the elevators were still intact and we'd force the elevators open and, and nobody was there. Mm. How awful. And I, again, I think the only, as the days would mount, the moral victories would be finding bodies or finding body parts, because at least you knew people could be identified with DNA. And you that's how you'd actually, you'd follow your nose. And if you would smell something, you know, a body decaying, that somebody probably was there. And then you'd have to get your tools and machines and try to kind of find them and kind of cut them out. Oh, my gosh. That's the victory, finding a body part or somebody who's gone. Right, and those would be those emotional moments when they would find, you know, a squished fire helmet and you would know that probably was a firefighter that you're finding. And, mm -hmm. you know, you would have a, if you could identify that helmet, you would probably have guys from that firehouse kind of come to take the body out to have some kind of ceremony that kind of honors this sacrifice and, mm -hmm. you know, take that, you know, everybody would stop on the site as, as this body was removed. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, then you go back to work. Mm. Sort of like a military salute, a, a yeah. department salute. Uh -huh. How did you survive that, George, like in your mind, and your heart? You don't know what you're capable of, right, until you have to face it. I mean, what other choice do you have? Somebody is, we may, you know, firefighters make a promise. You don't leave anyone behind. Yeah. And right? if I know if I was one of those those guys stuck that 
there would be people doing everything humanly possible to come and get me. So mm -hmm. that's exactly what I was going to do for them. Mm -hmm. It was that mission that pulled you through. It's, you know, I, it is the mission, but it's also, you know, love that, you know, it's not about you. Oh, it is moments definitely love. Yeah. And, and there were a bunch of those guys missing that I knew. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think there were so many different layers. I mean, there was the early just trauma, the event and the smoke and the debris. And, and then it was the more prolonged work itself trying to remove debris and find bodies and you know it was during that time i don't know a couple months in that you know we started to get feedback in the firehouses around just a lot of people struggling not knowing when the next attack is going to happen and at that point there was no counseling unit. i mean there was a counseling unit but it was mostly say of a force of ten thousand firefighters there would be one or two therapists that mostly were dealing with some kind of addiction or some kind of, mm -hmm. you know, crisis that they'd have to intervene. But there was nothing proactive to help people with their mental health or anxiety or depression. Mm -hmm. And or yet an PTSD. event like this, exactly, you know that's going to happen. Mm -hmm. And it was no different than anything else. It, there were a lot of people struggling. I'm and sure. I think that's where at the point I had just finished my graduate program as a, as a therapist, but I had no plans of ever working with firefighters because I don't want to hear about their feelings and they don't want to talk to me. So it was like a cool, <laughs> this was something I'll do, you know, a second career, maybe 10 years down the road, but I knew they could use help. So on my days off, I was also a volunteer peer counselor that would basically do what they call critical incident stress debriefings. You'd go mm -hmm. to a firehouse that lost 14, 15 firefighters and you'd meet at the kitchen table and you would just try to kind of help however you could logistically identify people struggling. And, you know, those were some really vulnerable moments where people have lost their best friends and the world is turned upside down and people are worried about their health and other attacks and, you would just sit there feeling pretty helpless, not knowing really what you could do. Mm -hmm. But some predictable things started to emerge, right? There was post-traumatic stress. There were people having panic attacks. There was depression. There were people acting out. Mm -hmm. And there were a lot of relationships struggling. And that's where like a bell went off in my head. And I was like, wow, relationships are struggling here. Who's going to help these, these guys like, talk about this stuff? I mean, there's, there's a saying in most firehouses that says, whatever you see here stays here, right? You don't want to share gory details with, with, with your partner at home. Mm -hmm. You don't want so to traumatize them. That. Right. So you mm -hmm. protect them and you can share it. But the problem is in a firehouse, you can't really share fear. <laughs> That's something people don't talk about. And you don't want to share that at home. So here you are having all these firefighters with high degrees of fear because the uncertainty of what's happening but really no outlet to go with those fears. So that's where I was like, you know what, maybe I should try to help in that area. And I was in a big room with lots of therapists and they were going down a list. Who wants to help firefighters with post-traumatic stress? 50 hands went up. Who wants to help firefighters with depression? 50. Then they got to marriage. Who wants to help couples with their marriage relationships? No hands went up. <laughs> 
And I was like, what? What is going on here? I am a marriage therapist. I probably could help here, but I don't want to see firefighters and their partners. So I was like the internal battle, you know, and finally it felt like forever. I was like, I, I, even me doing a bad job, it's got to be better than no one at all. So I like tentatively raised a finger and that director, I still don't to this day know how he saw that finger, but he was like, you, who does that? George, George, Frank. great. You got the couples. <laughs> and from that moment, I would work every Thursday at the counseling unit. That next Thursday, I had 10 couples show up in my office. Gosh. And I was a new therapist. I had no idea what I was doing. They were yelling and screaming at each other. All the things that I learned about communication and negotiation, none of it worked. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was just, it felt like I was back at ground zero with the chaos of it all. So it was in that trial by fire, trial literally, by fire. that <laughs> yes. I, I remember reaching out to Sue Johnson because I had remembered a an article that really resonated about seeing patterns and that maybe helps my tactical brain so I said, hey, can you help me? Send me a tape. And she said, yes, I will do all that. But even yet, I will fly out and train you. Mm. So, you know, she flew out. And as a new therapist, she really helped me make sense of the, the drama that was unfolding before my eyes. Mm. That is, God love her for doing that, for offering that up. And what a wonderful thing to have, you know, that kind of support. We needed it. America needed it. And you needed it. And yeah. she really gave herself. I mean, that's, that is the best of times to kind of recognize that in those moments of real adversity and tragedy and trauma, that I saw the best in humans, right? That I'll never forget driving down to the site, you know, every day and have thousands of people lined up cheering. Mm. And none of us considered ourselves heroes because the heroes died. Right. But that that people were just kind of we needed that energy. We needed mm -hmm. people belief and that that kind of hope and that we can get through this because it really we fed off it. It just allowed each day to, you know, people handing you a water bottle or wanting to give you a sandwich like that stuff. It really made a big difference. Mm -hmm. And I saw that with therapy. It weren't big egos. It was like people were just really united and focusing on the mission of recovery. Mm -hmm. And everybody had different gifts to give. But everybody just gave what they have. And, you know, I can still get goosebumps now thinking about how united we, we felt as a, as a people, mm -hmm. how we were all part of something so much bigger than just our own struggles. People gave their loaves and fishes and, and then the needs were met. Exactly. You know, and I think then on a personal front, you know, me and my wife were set up to miss each other because I didn't know how to talk about what I was saying. I didn't want to burden her. I, the rules were don't share any of this. She was trying to protect me. Meanwhile, we have a brand new baby and I'm never home and she's struggling. She's worried about what's going to happen next. We're both got fears through the roof, but we can't talk about it. Mm. Right? How could that not create distance? And you know, you start to run into more and more problems. So I remember that was probably the, a critical breakthrough. I was sitting there with my wife and I had all this stuff going on in my head. I remember that saying in a fired house that says, whatever you say, see here stays here. And I was like, wait a second, <laughs> this is bullshit. This is, there's something about, I don't have to get into the gory details, but just to talk about, you know, I'm nervous. I don't know what's going to happen next. 
I feel pretty helpless. I'm a fixer and a doer, and I don't know how the heck to fix these things. Mm. I was spending my days off going to three or four funerals a day. Oh my gosh. My son is four or five months old, and he's on my, he's in a backpack on my shoulders as I'm standing there watching, you know, a dead firefighter's son kind of wear his helmet. Mm -hmm. I mean, there was, there was a really a ton of heartbreak Mm -hmm. and not a lot of places to go with it. Mm -hmm. So really learning how to turn towards my wife and let her in and having her let me in. It's probably the, one of the few times I, I, I saw the power of vulnerability to make, to, to experience the safety of that. Mm-hmm. I might not fix the things I'm up against, but I, I can make a choice to face it alone or face it with somebody who's got my back. Mm-hmm. And that really was a powerful shift for me. Mm. She faced a lot too, you yeah. know, all the fear. And I, I have heard that from you before of her standing with the baby in her arms and letting you go. And that, that maybe as a woman, that really touches me. And then the two of you, I mean, you didn't know what was going to hit next. And yeah. I'm sure she, letting you go, she didn't know if you were going to come back that day, you know, if a building would collapse on you or what. I mean, day after day, she too was having fear. And yeah. I, I'm, I'm so glad you somehow or another found your way to each other to start to talk about these emotions. Yeah, it's a sign of strength that, you know, what I was trying to do with firefighters physically, which is we're not going to leave anybody behind, is what me and my wife did for each other emotionally, Mm -hmm. right? We made a choice not to leave each other behind when it came to these fears and these hurts, you know, and that makes all the difference in the world. It does. Which is how I can look back at it now and see the post-traumatic growth, how I really have learned to trust Instead of running into burning buildings, now I could run into places of fear and pain and hurt because I know this is where people need it the most. Mm-hmm. So I think that's what we try to do as therapists. And, you know, it's, it's one of the lessons I take out of 9 11. Mm. Yeah, now you run into couple ships that are <laughs> escalated and <laughs> on fire. And I've seen you, I've seen you do it many times where you, help people calm down so that they can get back to each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's not so different than what we're trying to do with couples talking about sex. They don't know how to talk about, therefore they leave each other alone in these places of mm-hmm. vulnerability and, you know, so helping them see that, wait, it's courage is to head towards it. Mm-hmm. It's not in avoiding these conversations. Right. Sometimes they leave each other behind. They're so sure that, their partner is dead to them and won't get it. And, mm-hmm. and they, they don't do that thing where they turn and share their fears and their vulnerabilities and their worries about the relationship, about their sex life. Right. Yeah. Which is, it's, you know, an honor for me 20 years later to just speak about this story, right. To honor the memory of people who chose to run towards those buildings. Mm-hmm run up those flights of stairs, you know, to put the lives of others before their own. And I mean, that is the most beautiful thing I think we can do. That is love in action, right? It's, it's, it's to head towards people where, where they need to the help. So again, I carry that, that memory of what they did with me every day. 
That's lovely, George. Could we dedicate this episode to them? Would you like to do that? Sure. I mean, this episode's in memory of all of those people lost on 9-11, both professionals running towards and civilians just doing everyday life, you know, and to all the people who were impacted that we will just seize the redemptive part of that day to see that there is, there is value in pain if we face it with others, right? The worst thing that we could do is to dishonor their memories, to go back to a divided world where we just focus on our own self-interest and we lose that collective cohesion that was so palpable on those months after 9-11. Thank you. So we thank you for listening. Don't leave your partner behind. Stay safe, everyone. Foreplay fam, I know this was an emotional episode. It was for me. And I would just like to honor George and his wife, Kathy, for their sacrifice and for what they gave to our country that day. I, I know that all of us can imagine George running toward the danger and the, the fires and doing what his training told him to do. But we also know that that's a heart of courage. And I'd like to dedicate this episode to George and thank George as well for his vulnerability and opening up to us and sharing about that day and his message of hope for healing. We love you, George. Our Couples Retreat is coming up and we'd love to invite all of you. It's going to be on October 1st, which is a Friday from 10 to 4.30 Eastern Standard Time. We're offering an early bird discount for the first 20 people who fully pay and sign up. And you know, we're going to do all kinds of cool stuff. We talk about male and female arousal and how to get to the best sex and what the sexual attachment cycle is all about and how to resolve problems and I just want you to know that all the exercises are private, so you're only going to be doing it with your partner. You can ask questions and talk in the group, but it's not necessary. So we welcome participation, but it's never going to be demanded of you. And I, I just thought, George, I would read something that people who have gone through this have said to us. So here's one, like magic, by the end of the day, we found ourselves having conversations we never thought we'd have and really listening to each other for the first time in years. It's like months of marriage therapy supercharged into one day full of breakthroughs right from your own sofa. If enough people attend this conference, my divorce firm will go out of business. Thank you. (laughs) We'd love to have you sign up. It's on our website, foreplayradiosextherapy.com, and it's under the resource section. Laurie, really excited about the Success and Vulnerability Project. We are really pushing the leading edges of therapy and breaking down the process and in moments, session by session, choice points. Why does this work? What intervention are you using? If it works, what do you do next? I mean, this is the next level for therapists. If you want to up your game, you want to see real clinical examples, you want to break down the process, you want demonstrations, you want teaching. I mean, it's all there. Really exciting, good stuff. It is. I love it. I listen to the new modules repeatedly. 
It's great information. I'm learning, you know, still in the process and it is good. I love what you guys do teaching and the demonstrations. They're fun, they're funny, and they're really helpful to my work. So this is training for therapists. If you'd like this training, go to successinvulnerability.com. It's all one word, successinvulnerability.com. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.